This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. News this morning that we have a Democratic challenger to Mike DeWine in the governor's race next year, Nan Whaley just announced. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer for a sunny Monday morning. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Layla Atassi. Happy Monday, everybody. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Like all Mondays, we have lots to talk about. So let's start. How do the actual campaign finance reports filed by U.S. Senate candidates Jane Timpkin and Josh Mandel tell a very different story than what they had said before the reports were due. Jane Cahoon, this was pretty great reporting by Seth Richardson to put this into perspective. Will do. Um, well, let's start with Jane Timken, the, the former Ohio Republican Party chairman. Hers is pretty simple to explain. Be, before the finance deadline of last week, she touted her fundraising prowess by releasing her top line numbers, which showed she had raised $2.1 million, substantially besting her competitors in this GOP nomination contest and any of the possible contenders for that matter. But when she actually filed her report on the due date last week, it showed that one million of that was uh, personally loaned from her to her campaign. So in terms of individual contributions, she had one point one million, certainly a good amount, but not as much as some of the others contemplating the race. For for example, Steve Stivers, a Republican congressman who's thinking about getting in, collected one point four million. And Tim Ryan, a Democratic congressman who's probably going to announce his candidacy any day now, raised $1.2 million. So and Stivers did it the old-fashioned way, right? Where he collected yeah. money from other people and put it into his campaign <laughs> account. It's like, whoa, what a concept. The number one guy hasn't even announced yet. Yeah. And, and you know, gosh. Timken was also using this to brag about her fundraising in the GOP world. And, you know, it's like... Yeah. It's completely bogus. Yeah, it's yeah. just bogus in the high extreme. And then Josh <laughs> Mandel's is even stranger. Yeah, this is gets a little complicated. He boasted about raising $1.3 before the deadline. Again, a technically accurate figure like Timkins, but he raised the bulk of his money through what's called a joint fundraising committee. And that means his campaign does not get all of that money. His spokesman said the campaign would bank around $700,000 from the fundraising committee. And it gives him a cash on hand of about $5 bucks. He'd been sitting on a bunch of money around $4 million, I think, from previous campaigns before he even got started here. So he's he's got a healthy war chest. But this animal called the Joint Fundraising Committee is made up of his campaign, his leadership pack, and the Delaware County Republican Party now, why does he use this method? I think it's it's kind of complicated, but I think the end result is that donors can donate more to it than a traditional campaign. So, of course, you know, both Mandel's and Timken's campaigns pushed back on the idea that they were deliberately trying to make their numbers look better than they were. <laughs> but this is, as you said, it was bogus and it's totally consistent with the ugliness of the, this campaign, with both of them trying to tout their superiority to 
GOP donors and, of course, to Donald Trump, the most important person for them to impress. I don't get the Josh Mandel thing. You say people can donate more money, but then he gets to use less of it. And why Delaware County? Is that where he's trying to practice his new Appalachian accent? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Delaware County doesn't seem like the right place for that. So I don't know. We're we're exploring this. We're asking some more questions about this of the experts, like how this all works. But the limits for, you know, donating to a PAC are, you know, you can donate more. And even though he doesn't get as much, it's something where like the money, you know, first goes to his campaign and then to the PAC. It's I if I try to explain it, I'm going to make a mistake, but it's 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 complicated. But Delaware County just seems so random. I mean, he's from yeah, Cuyahoga I, County. He he worked in Columbus, so you know, maybe Franklin County. But why I just don't get it. No, no. It, it seems very fishy. Whenever we're talking about Josh Mandel and it seems fishy yeah. because it is. I'd like to know more about that. We'll have to figure it out. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Ohio's Republican lawmakers released with some fanfare their big budget proposal trumpeting yet another cut in the state income tax. What's that actually worth to your average Ohioan? Leila Tassi, we've been chronicling how crippled state government is, the health department, the unemployment office, because they haven't had the money to update. One of the reasons is we keep cutting income taxes. And yet here it comes again. Is it going to make me rich? (laughs) <laughs> no, you know, it's it's really chump change. Our our Rich Axner crunched the numbers for us and he found that it boils down to about $29 a year or 57 cents a week for the average filer with a $60,000 taxable income. The current income tax bill for that typical filer is $1,470. So because of the way Ohio's tax rates are structured, the tax cut would be more for those who pay more in taxes. But still, we're talking about a negligible savings. You know, at the $100,000 income level, the annual savings would be about $57 from what is now a $2,855 tax bill. At $150,000, the tax bill of, you know, almost $5,000 would drop by about $100,000. It'll be months before there's a decision on this as as part of the process to approve the budget. Governor DeWine didn't include an income tax cut in his budget proposal earlier this year, and lawmakers have until the end of June to pass the next two-year state budget. But a tax cut could put Ohio's use of the federal stimulus money in jeopardy. You know, that that stimulus bill that was signed into law could bar states from cutting taxes through 2024 if they're using stimulus money because the intention of the stimulus is to help states and local governments recover from the pandemic, not to fund tax cuts like this. So we're kind of treading on thin ice. I, I'm worried. I'm, I'm worried because obvi- obviously this is uh, this is just a political stunt, just trying to uh, you know win people over with promise of tax cuts when really we're talking about just enough money to like you know go have a nice dinner once you cobble together the savings from the year. <laughs> Actually, I, I think it's something sicker. I think it's an addiction. This is heroin for legislators. It's not good for you. They can't stop doing it. And and it's really putting them into a bad place. I mean, there's no benefit to this. Nobody's asking for tax cuts. No employer is leaving Ohio because we have an income tax. It's it's just silly. You have to keep doing it. And we saw what happened with the unemployment office. Their computer dates back to like 2004 and it could not handle the load. The health department is basically inept because it doesn't have any of the technology it needs to do the job 
that was needed in the pandemic. And we don't even know about the other departments yet. They keep doing it. No one's asking for it. I think it's an addiction. I think we need to get them all treated. And while we're while we're getting them treated, <laughs> maybe we can get them to get the damn uh, vaccine or start wearing that. Oh, you're on fire today, Chris. <laughs> I have to keep up with you, Layla. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How hard has the pandemic hit the pre-K system in Cuyahoga County, something that has been the focus of much investment in recent years? Laura Johnston, this is terribly disappointing. We devoted an entire year of content to spreading awareness of the first 2,000 days to try and drum up support for Armin Budish's effort to put a lot more money into it. And now all that's been crushed. All that progress seems gone. Yeah. And this is this is a huge story and it has huge implications. We're not sure how long they're going to last or what the net effect will be on families. But enrollment in Cuyahoga County's child care centers dropped 43 percent for kids from birth to age five from September 2019 through September 2020. Capacity shrank at the same time by 29 percent. So remember, during the shutdown last March, everything closed. Then some centers opened with limited capacities and so special pandemic licenses. At the end of May, they were allowed to reopen, and then restrictions were lifted for most centers about August. Obviously, they still had special things in place to make sure that kids and their caretakers were safe. But this made a huge impact on the child care system, and then 36% of providers are operating at reduced capacity. Six centers in the county and 11 family child care homes closed permanently during the pandemic. And this is a county where you don't have that many spots to choose from to begin with. So we're looking at what could be child care deserts in some areas where there is more demand than capacity. And this is going to be harder for women who were already pushed out of the workforce during COVID because they won't have quality child care to pick from. This is really, really depressing. Yeah, it's one of the worst things that has happened during this pandemic. And until I saw the story, I didn't even realize it. I wonder if Armin Budish can use some of the money that the county is getting in stimulus to try and recharge it as we come out of the pandemic. This is one, it was one of his signature efforts when he first became county executive. And it was great. I mean, the, the he put up five million extra in county money, and then private sector came through with eight million. He was trying to put it permanently into the budget, and this is the long term investment. This is the the investment that he'll never see the fruits of by the right. time those kids are doing better and going to college or what have you. He'll be long gone. It was it was really just a great effort, and we're just and, like we're worse off than we were right. before we this started. Is- Totally a two-pronged problem. Like one is is a workforce business issue, making sure there's places for kids to go so their parents can work. On the other hand, this is about high quality pre-K education so that when these kids go to kindergarten in a public school, they're ready to learn. They know their numbers, they know how to write their name, and they are prepared. If you don't have prepared kids, if you have kids that have been at home and not getting any education, then it's going to be harder for those school system to be able to educate those kids and they're going to fall farther and farther behind. And and you're right. I, I wish that we would learn something from the pandemic and say, well, childcare has really suffered. This is something we can put stimulus money in it. Let's rethink childcare as a whole, not just early childhood education, pre-K, but the whole system, birth to age five, and really figure out how to make this work in the future. But as we've said time and time again on this podcast, nobody seems interested in improving lives. We're just, you know, going to cut taxes and, and tell the governor he can't have long-term health orders. Can, well, can I jump hope. in? 
I just wanted to, what came to mind here, I I recently saw on Facebook a discussion among mothers who were talking about how they had to wake up at midnight, sort of set their alarms to try to get their child into enrolled in a local preschool. And we're just talking about a preschool that's based in a church here. We're not talking about like some hoity-toity, you know, private uh, institution or something like that. They were all vying for these coveted spots in just a local pre-K program. And this is a pretty well-resourced community we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the, so, the, yeah, you're right. There is a, a dearth of, of available spots. And on the other hand, you know, when we were working on the Greater Cleveland Project, I mean, I've seen, you know, firsthand, I've seen the the effect of children, you know, coming into the system who haven't had any exposure at all to pre-K. They, right. It's a Herculean task to overcome that gap in their educational progress. Yeah. And I, I, I jump on what Layla's saying. I was on a wait list when we moved to Rocky River five years ago for six months to get my kids into childcare. And that childcare center closed during the pandemic. So I can't even imagine how bad it is for the kids here now in my community. But at least now the problem is quantified so right. that the people that control the budgets can can get going. Let's hope Armin Buder saddles up and tries to bring this back because it was central to his original campaign promises. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With Ohio Governor Mike DeWine making clear that he is no death penalty advocate, where do we stand in Ohio with capital punishment? Jane Cahoon, this is a special treat for the podcast listener. We're talking about a story we haven't even published yet. (laughs) Yes, but I know what it says. (laughs) So essentially, we are nowhere on this. The, The death penalty is still the law of the land in Ohio, but for years now, there's been this fruitless search to find lethal injection drugs because pharmaceutical companies don't want to sell them for that purpose. And so Ohio has executed only three people in the last seven years. And Governor Mike DeWine, who, you know, he we've talked about his kind of waning support for the death penalty, has said that he's not going to allow any more executions until state lawmakers decide on an alternative to lethal injection. And that's a topic they are pretty reluctant to jump into. But Beyond that, DeWine's focused on the coronavirus crisis, and lawmakers really haven't done anything on this. So we've got more than 130 death row inmates, as well as the loved ones of their victims, sitting in limbo here about what the future is going to be for the death penalty. And Dave Yost, the attorney general, did, did a recent report on this, kind of blasting the glacial pace of death penalty cases, saying it's just unacceptable. And if we don't think this is the appropriate highest sanction anymore, then we owe it to the families of these victims to tell them it's not available. It's not the law anymore. So in other words, do something here. Now, we did report recently there's this legislation to abolish the death penalty in Ohio, and it actually has some support on both sides of the aisle. But there are two pretty big obstacles to that. Uh, both Senate President Matt Huffman and House Speaker Bob Cup support the death penalty. And they're not exactly blocking it, but, you know, Huffman's allowing hearings, and he said he'd allow a floor vote if there was an overwhelming number of senators supporting it. And then Cup said he's going to let the Senate take the lead on this. He made one of his usual cryptic comments to reporters last week saying, the implementation of the death penalty has some serious impediments at this time. What the alternatives are is something that will obviously be explored in this process. 
Man, so, as so I said, you know, I get the feeling that I'm sure the opponents of the death penalty are, you know, that they, they don't mind, I guess, that the executions keep getting put off. But I right. think everybody wants to see some some kind of resolution. Here. Actually, I don't I don't think Mike DeWine does want to see resolution. I think he is perfectly content to not take a public position on it, even though it's clear he doesn't favor it. He's been in office for nearly two and a half years and no one's been executed. And when you ask him about it, you get that little grin. He's he's made clear. And so I think he's perfectly fine just <laughs> not executing anybody without taking any action. I think if they abolished it, he'd sign the bill. But but I don't believe he's in any rush. I bet we end his term exactly as we are now. Yeah. I, can I jump in here? This is Layla Tassi. I For a party that is so concerned with saving taxpayers $29 a year. <laughs> you would think that the death penalty would make no sense to them. It is so exorbitantly expensive to put someone on death row, to keep them there, and to just just to go through the trial that's required to sentence someone to death. I mean, I wrote about this in, in a column not long ago in reference to the Anthony Sowell case that was gosh, close to a million dollars, if not more than a million, just to just to put that case on, just to go through the paces of of giving him a chance to to prove that the jury should, you know, that he's deserving of having his life spared. I mean, that that portion of the case alone is hundreds of thousands of dollars. This And then he died anyway. Yes. And then he died of natural causes in prison, not not a decade into his uh, his term. It's just it's just insanity. To keep pushing that forward when you when you actually take into account how much it costs. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. We've heard how Cleveland City Council wants to spend the stimulus windfall that Cleveland is getting. But how does a social service organization want to use it to overcome longstanding ramifications of racism? Leila Tassi, we've had this on the on the podcast schedule probably three times and never gotten to it. <laughs> we finally get to it, and you've just written a column about it. That's right, so. yeah. So, well, in this case, the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition has drafted its own plan for how Cleveland could spend its half a billion dollars in federal coronavirus recovery aid, and they're calling it the African American Rescue Plan, and it focuses on the problems that stand in the way of Black Clevelanders really thriving and prospering. This plan addresses areas where disparities exist, including access to technology and education, health care, food, employment, wages, and housing. So it's things like improving Wi-Fi access to eliminate the digital divide or attracting viable businesses to the neighborhoods like grocery stores and banks and markets, just things that people need to live a prosperous life in, in their communities they talk about offering trade programs to teach job skills and other employment programs. They would like to see more medical and dental care, especially to children and perhaps through the schools. And they would like to see an increased funding for rapid rehousing and affordable housing programs and lead safe housing and things like that. You know, many of these ideas have been laid on the table already. I did recently write a column about how city council had a dis discussion recently about, you know, what they would like to see. And a lot of these ideas came up. Mayor Frank Jackson hasn't said yet where his spending priorities lie. He's just said that the city has to figure out what costs are reimbursable under the federal guidelines. And they have to evaluate how the city is recovering overall from the pandemic to know 
where to target the money in a way that would spark economic activity. After that, they can invest the remainder in in long-term economic growth, which could include addressing inequality and racial disparities. But, you know, we've discussed this before, and this was sort of the topic of my column. The city might be in for a rude awakening when it comes to how much of the city's income tax has been permanently eroded by commuters who don't ever return to work in the city. I think the city would be wise to kind of wrap their arms around that problem first before encumbering any of this federal money for other purposes. Yeah, it is transformational money, though. If they if they figured out a way to cope with the loss of income taxes and put this into reversing years of bad decisions, it could be good. At least this group gets that, and they're trying to spark that conversation. Mm-hmm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With everyone itching to return to some semblance of normal at the end of the pandemic, what are some of the habits they learned during COVID-19 that people want to keep? Lord Johnson, this is interesting. We asked people about this and a lot of them came back and said, yeah, 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 I, I'm sick of COVID, but I like X. What is right. X? They, they like a lot of different things that they've adjusted their lives to incorporate. They like working from home. They like working out from home. Some families have regular Zoom calls with far-flung family all over the country, some game nights even. They love grocery delivery, everything delivery. If they don't have to leave their house to go you know, spend an hour fighting traffic and other people and standing in line. And like, it's a win-win. And this has been codified a little bit in a couple of surveys, like uh, a sales and marketing service providers called Acosta said 53% of shoppers said they spent less time in stores in 2020, 40% did more online shopping and 75% want to continue their new shopping habits. So I think a lot of people have really enjoyed not facing crowds. Yeah, I, I it was it was fascinating how many people said I'm, I don't want to go to a grocery store ever again in my life, and it's just it, in some ways I look at that and think, okay, that's a little bit lazy, but I get it. If you have limited time and you can save that time and risk getting sick, that then it's good. I've been surprised at how many people say they want to keep some semblance of mask wearing because they don't miss getting the common cold. So, mm-hmm. and people like watching church. I, I know that. Uh, I don't feel like it's the same, but you can watch it whenever it's convenient for you. So, yeah, there's all sorts of super convenient ways. It's just we kind of lost the gathering part. That was the whole idea, right? Right. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does Congressman Dave Joyce, a Republican, want to relax federal rules about marijuana? Jane Kuhn, I think 10 years ago, I, I could not have imagined words like that issuing from my mouth. But here we are. A Republican in favor of relaxed (laughs) marijuana rules. What's that about? Well, Dave Joyce has been a a co-chair of this Congressional Cannabis Caucus for for quite some time now. So in that sense, it wasn't surprising last week when he joined other co-chairs of this caucus in introducing a bill to lift the federal ban on doctors at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs from discussing, recommending, or prescribing medical marijuana in states where it's legal. As we know, medical marijuana is legal in Ohio and many other states, but marijuana is still a Schedule I controlled substance under federal law. So VA doctors aren't allowed to discuss it with their patients or prescribe it. So this legislation that he's co-sponsoring with a couple of Democrats, uh, California Rep. Barbara Lee and Hawaii Hawaii Rep. uh, Brian Schatz, would would create this five-year safe harbor protection for both veterans who use medical marijuana and their doctors. 
And it would also direct the VA to research the effects that medical marijuana has on veterans who are experiencing pain, as well as the relationship between medical marijuana programs and a potential reduction in opioid abuse among veterans. And it and it would allot 15 million bucks to get the program going. Joyce says that, you know, evidence shows that medical marijuana can be used to treat things like chronic pain and post-traumatic stress disorder, which affect many veterans. So he said, you know, if a state like Ohio's made it legal, the federal government should not be preventing a VA doctor from from recommending it. Yeah, it's it's about time the feds change their laws. So many states have legalized it. The people have spoken and it's kind of preposterous to continue to have that federal prohibition. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We learned a lot from the overwhelming response by our readers and audience to how we approach at least one element of rape coverage in our newsroom. How is it changing our approach? Leila Tassi, you get this question because we kind of ended up where you were at the beginning of the discussion. <laughs> well, Chris, I, I texted you about this over the weekend when I saw your column. But I just want to publicly say how proud I am to be a part of a newsroom that evolves in ways like this and is always striving to do the right thing. You know, so so after gathering all that feedback from readers and listening very thoughtfully, the concerns of the survivor in that one high profile rape case, Cleveland.com will no longer highlight in stories that a rape victim was intoxicated at the time of an attack. So this decision comes after we received an email from a woman who said that she was abducted from downtown Cleveland while she and a friend were hailing an Uber on West 6th Street, and then she was taken to a motel in East Cleveland and raped. And 27-year-old Christian Burks has been charged with that attack and others. But in our coverage of the cases, we had repeated a notation from police reports that the women were intoxicated at the time that they were attacked. And our sense at the time was that mentioning that in the story might be helpful to people going downtown to realize that this person was specifically stalking women who seemed somewhat incapacitated, and we thought that was doing a public service. But the victim pointed out that, in fact, it's a a form of victim blaming, that it suggests that she was responsible for what happened to her when she should be able to feel safe going out and having a couple drinks with friends without fear of being raped. And she made the case that it doesn't really serve to make people safer in any way to point out that she was drunk. It doesn't really stop people from going out to have drinks with friends, but they would go somewhere else to do it if they knew that a rapist is stalking West 6th Street, for example. Of course, this guy's been caught. So knowing any of that after the fact doesn't really help anyone. I think that we should be hearing about these cases more in real time, in my opinion. But regardless, you know, Chris, you can speak more to the kinds of feedback that you receive from readers when you put this out there for their input. But overall, I'm just really proud of the outcome here. This really aligns with our guiding principle to do no harm and my own feeling that we're a newsroom that really prioritizes empathy and compassion. So I'm just really happy about it. Well, and the empathy was what struck me. And, I, and I've never gotten a response like this to anything I've written. It was, it's, it's well over 200 now. It's like 250, and they keep coming in. And, and the breakdown between men and women was immediately obvious with the first 20 or 30 of these. Nearly two-thirds of the men said you should include that detail, and more than two-thirds of the women said you shouldn't, that there is no need to warn women that there are predators out there looking for them and the drinking makes them more vulnerable. They know that. But, but the women, you could see it in their 
long, I mean, they all wrote long notes, very thoughtful notes. They were putting themselves in the place of the victim and saying, you are making it harder for the victim because when that detail is in the story, the victim automatically thinks the greater community thinks that she did something to cause it. It causes a false sense of guilt. And it was overwhelming. I mean, it, it, by, in the end, it was like, well, women are the ones that are most vulnerable to rape. And women, by and large, say this is much more harmful than beneficial. That, that made it a, a fairly easy decision. It's fascinating. I have heard from people since we announced this saying, how dare you withhold things from a police report? That, you know, that's censorship. It's like, we, we don't, we're not a stenographer for police. We've never used all the details from a police report. In a traffic accident, every traffic accident report includes the weather. But we don't include the weather with every story we do about an accident. I mean, if there's ice involved or something, mm-hmm. we would. But mm-hmm. it's just silly that this, this, how dare you, Mr. Quinn, y- your job is to give us all the facts. Well, we don't give you all the facts. We never could. There's no amount of space that can contain all the facts. And this came down to, is this something we should put in? We don't use race in crime stories anymore. We stopped that years ago. There's lots of things that evolve in in the news industry that that we're constantly assessing. This this caught me up short. I mean, it was the kind of thing that it's in the police report, and generally it's a detail that seemed important. But clearly, the readers don't think so, and they made a compelling case for why, and that's why we changed it going yeah. forward. So. You know, and also, you know, I, I feel like we should say thank you publicly to the survivor who had the courage to speak out and and send us that message that sparked this discussion. Clearly, this young woman has the spirit of an advocate. And, you know, I just wish her well in in moving forward. In the middle of dealing with this horrific trauma, she took the time to reach out. Mm -hmm. I I publicly thanked her in the column and we're publicly thanking her here. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for a Monday discussion. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. And thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs>